We've been in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, and if I'm just giving you an intro here, just kind of make sure that we're all on the same page. We paused our study through the book of Daniel to do what we typically do at least once a year, where we try to take some time to look at how the church ought to relate to one another, the members of a church. And so we decided to do that uh, through 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, because this particular section of Scripture is where Paul begins to address the relationship between believers in the local church. And so we thought it'd be especially helpful. But in this, uh, this kind of pairing of teachings, we get a bunch of stuff that we're going to have to unpack to get the best knowledge and understanding of it. Namely, spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, miracles, healing, those sorts of things. If you were here with us last week, you'll know that we didn't quite make it to the end of chapter 13, which is a famous chapter on how we ought to love one another, especially in the Christian church. So we're going to start there this morning and then venture about halfway through chapter 14 today. The Bible never promises that each local church will be given the same mix or combination of spiritual gifts. And just as believers differ from one another, so will local churches God didn't stamp out churches with a cookie cutter, and so some of the things we discover in passages like these may or may not be the ordinary experience for each individual believer today. We're going to be talking about tongues and prophecy, because that's where our text takes us today. And if this is a, a new topic for you, if you're thinking tongues, I don't, I don't know what you're meaning by that, that's okay. I hope to introduce some of that, and that'll be, I hope, helpful today. Uh, I had planned two uh, kind of uh, one big sermon that broke into two, so we'll be doing a, a part one today that will wrap up, uh, Lord willing, next week on this particular topic. Regardless as to where you are and familiarity with this kind of stuff, I think that this will be edifying for you. And one of the reasons I think that is because we live in a day and an age where there is uh, rampant ridiculousness regarding the spiritual gifts, either an abuse of or perhaps a neglect of these gifts and certainly wrong thinking. It can be found all over. You might be in a particular stream of Christian church that you don't interact with it a lot, and maybe you don't know that that's a major deal, but it definitely is, especially on the mission field. You and I may regularly hear about uh, the gospel going out to all the nations, and praise be the Lord for that. But many times, what follows with uh, the the gospel going to a new tongue, a new place, a new nation, is a lot of the types of things that we see as abuses of the spiritual gifts. My hope is then to be a guard for some of those types of things and to point you to what the scriptures teach about them. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 14, 12. And if you have your Bibles with you, I think it would be especially helpful in passages like these to just follow along with me and just go ahead and keep your finger on the, the, the part where we are. Uh, nevertheless, I will have the slides up there a verse at a time so you can follow that way too. But I'm going to read uh, the passage we have at hand, pray, and then we'll go back through this doctrine. Let's pray. Let, let's read and then pray. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then 
face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We pray that you would use it to guard us from error. Teach us what we need to know. Help us be built up in love for one another that we may use our gifts to build up the church. Father, I pray that you would help especially guard me from error this morning as we walk through a doctrine that even has uh, much debate inside of Christian circles. And so, Lord, keep me from that error. I pray that I'd be true, clear, and helpful, and that the gospel would ring loudly as we walk through these things this morning. Give us your guidance by your Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Back to the beginning of our passage today in 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I, became, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In this passage here, we see Paul giving additional reasons as to why love is so important. If you had been with us last week, you'll know that chapter 13 is this beautiful passage on why love is so important to to pursue as we use our spiritual gifts in the church. And here he gives us that reason, that it lasts forever. Love lasts forever. It's eternally experienced by believers. In fact, as he explains, love will outlast the spiritual gifts. Namely, prophecies, tongues, and utterances of knowledge. That's what's specifically being talked about in this paragraph. But love outlasts those things. You see, spiritual gifts, as we've already seen, are for building up the church. They are tools. But once the whole house has been built, the tools are put away. They're no longer needed. 
Paul lived in a time, as we still do today, where our knowledge is greatly limited. Therefore, our ability to know and understand truth is greatly hindered. But this day will end. As a believer, you will either die and go to be with the Lord, or this age will end the second coming. And whichever comes first, on that day, everything will change for you. I want to show you this from 1 John chapter 3. John makes a very similar uh, statement. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This, of course, is talking about the second coming of Jesus, in which he will restore all of us to resurrected bodies, those who had died in the flesh, buried in the ground, whose souls have gone to be with the Lord in heaven. We will then have our corrupted, sinful flesh worn away, It'll finally be gone. We will be given a new resurrected body on that day. We will see Jesus face to face. And the limitations of our degenerate bodies and minds will expire. We will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, just for a quick warning, I don't think we have to take this at all to mean omniscience, as though all of a sudden now we know all the things that God can or does know. No, but as creatures, we can finally have those current limitations removed that we may see clearly. Our broken, bounded, inadequate knowledge of spiritual things will one day be traded out for a full knowledge. You could say we will receive a knowledge upgrade, a capacity to understand the things that today are very challenging. And Paul compares this change with the change that occurs when a man matures from the state of a child to that of an adult. And as the difference between viewing our face in a foggy mirror and seeing another face to face. I think these are really amazing illustrations for his point because this does not mean that in the future we will throw away all the things that we learned in the past. Instead, we will finally be able to mature beyond our current inabilities and the things that we've already learned to be true will somehow be known as even truer to us. So if you're hearing that, don't believe that this means that when you get there, all the knowledge of the past goes away. All those things were lies. Now there's truth that's revealed. No, there are things that are said to us today through his word, understanding that may be sought out and gained today that is imperfect, that is incomplete. And someday those true things will be boldly and evidently seen for what they are fully true. And remember that the reason that Paul is saying all these things right now is because he's trying to help us to love one another. He's essentially saying, unlike those spiritual gifts I was just telling you about, love never ends. How much more then ought you to pursue love, which you will have for God and for one another into eternity? You're not going to need prophecy. You're not going to need tongues. You're not going to need the utterances of knowledge. You will finally see him face to face. And this is just another reason why we should make such an effort to love one another well. Practice today for what you'll be doing eternally. And he summarizes this paragraph in verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Unlike love, faith and hope are like those tools 
They're only needed temporarily. The day will come where we will no longer need to rely on faith and hope. When the day of the Lord comes, you will not stand before him and say, I'm hoping someday it'll be here because it will be here. You won't have to have faith without seeing Christ that he is risen indeed. You will see him risen indeed. It's like the famous hymn says, faith becomes sight. Hope expires, but love lasts. So pursue doing all things in love for God and for one another. Let's not miss that that's the point of chapter 13. It's not here to tell us of the shelf life of the spiritual gifts. I think that is here, but that's not the primary point. It is here to encourage us to love one another. Now, you may know that there are Christians who believe that some of these very spiritual gifts that were just mentioned have ceased in our day. And there are other believers who believe that these gifts continue in our day. The views are conveniently called cessationism for ceasing and continuationism for continuing. These verses have been used by people on both sides of the cessation continuation debate. So in order to be sufficiently thorough, I think it'd be helpful for us to walk through what those things are today as we're in this text. Now here's the disclaimer I'll give you as we get going. You should know that at the Mission Church, we have members who are on both sides of this debate, either side. There is charitable disagreement on this point of doctrine even amongst the pastors. They have their view and I'm right. That's just the way that it goes down. Something else. Additionally, we have plenty of people who are unconvinced of either view. I know I'm not quite sure where I am with it yet. And, and there are even members of our church who go, I, I'm totally unfamiliar with this. I, I don't know. I don't know any parts of this, really. So I want you to know that regardless of where you land, you can feel at home here. This is not a membership requirement by any stretch. This isn't the kind of thing we think is worthy of dividing over. It's something that we should charitably, with great love and affection, without judgment, Uh, be willing to chat about until the Lord returns. But I do think that it would be helpful for you to understand the views. There's a bit of a prevailing idea out there in the church today that when you come to points of doctrine that might, might cause some debate, avoid them. I refuse. I refuse to go down that path. And I don't believe that that's what the Lord meant when Jesus told us to observe everything that he has commanded. We are to teach those things. That means everything, all, including these points of doctrine. So, I'd like to begin this part by giving you a definition of cessationism and continuationism. Cessationism and continuationism. First, cessationism is the view that God no longer supplies certain of these spiritual gifts for the church's use in our day. Those gifts have ceased to be granted to the church today. And typically, the the, uh, gifts that are in mind are tongues, and the interpretation of tongues, prophecy, uh, miracles, and healings. Those are the ones that are typically talked about as sign gifts, those that were particularly needed for an authentication period. And as you might expect, there are a variety of different kinds of cessationists. The particularities of this viewpoint lie along a spectrum, just as the case with many other doctrines. But you should know that cessationists do not reject miracles altogether. This is not necessarily the rigid, no way God works today. No, that's not not what a cessationist would hold to. A cessationist can pray that God would heal a person supernaturally, miraculously. That God would work salvation in the heart of an unbeliever. 
A cessationist can see that God may supernaturally provide for our needs. He or she could even affirm the possibility that God might uniquely inspire an individual instance of a prophetic warning or give someone the ability to speak in a language otherwise known to them for the sake of the gospel. The primary point of departure from the opposing view would be that cessationists hold that we should not expect any such miracles today as an exercise of spiritual gifts, but as individual acts empowered by God for his purposes. Now, many who hold to this view might see cessation in this paragraph that we just finished reading. Some cessationists see the perfect coming as the completion of the New Testament canon. So, naturally, they go, well, once the canon was complete, the perfect has come. We have all that we need. We don't need those tools any longer. We don't need prophecy, tongues, utterances of knowledge any longer because we have the Word now, authoritatively. Others would admit that this passage does not explicitly teach that any gifts have ceased, but point to the fact that the office of apostle has ceased as proof that the subsequent spiritual gifts that were a sign of true apostolic work have likewise ceased. That's the cessationist view. On the other hand, we have continuationism. This is the view that the giving of these spiritual gifts to the church continues in our day. Again, this does not mean that every local church should expect that each of these gifts will be manifested in our local body, but that it is possible, even expected, that God supplies these gifts for churches in our day much in the same way that he did back in Corinth. A continuationist might argue from this very same paragraph that the perfect coming refers to the eternal state when we finally get to be with and see Jesus face to face, which has clearly not come yet. And therefore, we should expect all of these spiritual gifts to continue until we see him face to face. So let me show you my cards. Here's here's the view that I hold and where I'll be preaching from in regards to these things. Last week, I explained that I think the office of apostle has ceased. The capital A Apostle. I explained that last week for several reasons. Most notably, that no one today has visibly seen the resurrected Christ, which is a prerequisite. And therefore, no one today has been directly sent by Jesus. They're sent by churches and by others. They're not sent by Jesus in the flesh. The apostles were designated by Jesus to deliver his word to the church, i.e., oversee the completion of Scripture, to be sure. So any who would agree with that line of thinking that I just stated there could be called cessationist regarding apostles and the canon of Scripture. Just to know, that's the language. However, I believe that it neither logically follows nor is it biblically affirmed that the spiritual gifts being instructed by Paul in this letter have ceased. In this way, I am not a cessationist. I identify as a continuationist. That's where I would be. Because I can't find any verses in the Bible that tell me otherwise. And I see this passage as further confirmation of that. I think the most natural reading of this favors the continuationist view. All of our knowledge today, now, is partial. Because we're building up the church until Jesus returns. Until when? When he returns. In the end. And so we will be in need of those partial gifts, those tools, until that day. 
That, to me, is the most natural reading of this paragraph. And one of the chief hermeneutical principles, that is, tools that we use to understand Scripture, is that we should let the clearest verses in Scripture inform the less clear passages and logical inferences. So 1 Corinthians 14 ends in verse 39. I'll just read it out loud to you now. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's a direct command from the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Desire to prophesy, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. In order for me to forbid tongues for today, I would need some verses that are at least as clear as that one in order to reverse the prohibition there. So just for clarity, as I teach through the rest of 1 Corinthians 14, I think that there will be many points of agreement from each of the views. I do think that that's the case. In fact, I might be so bold as to say that I suspect even the rigid cessationists could agree with the majority of what I'll be preaching on. I actually think that's the case based upon how we'll define some of these terms. Nevertheless, I will be teaching from a continuationist point of view So brace yourself if that's not your view. Listen up. I want to continue to verse 1 of chapter 14 where Paul begins to unpack what these things are. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Here Paul picks up on the previous flow of his instruction on spiritual gifts, which he parted from at the end of chapter 12. So so not to lose you, he he, he walked through 11 and chapter 12. When he got to the end of chapter 12, he said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he moves on, I think, it looks like he's moving on to make the point, but don't forget to love each other as you do this. And now he's returning back to the instruction on those gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the next 25 verses, Paul's going to continually distinguish between two of the spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. Those are the two he's going to invest energy into more than the others. Interpretation as a part of tongues, but it's really prophecy and tongues. And he will compare those things over and over. So in order to make the best sense of this, we're going to need to begin with a few definitions. Let me begin by venturing a definition of prophecy, as he says here in verse 1. Prophecy is, at least, the gift from God to expound and interpret Scripture to the church's edification. The gift from God to expound and interpret Scripture to the church's edification. Prophecy throughout the Old and New Testament, functions in two ways. And you'll notice I referenced one of those two functions in that definition that I just gave, because I think that's how he's using it in 1 Corinthians. But the two functions of prophecy, Old and New Testament, can be broken down into two categories, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is predicting a future events, and forthtelling is essentially preaching. It's the authoritative proclamation of God's word. Now, the future prediction is kind of the language that most non-believers use when they think of prophecy. You watch Star Wars, you watch movies that talk about a prophecy. It's almost always a, a, a future prediction of an event that will come at some point. But prophecy in the Bible has both of those functions assigned to it. This two function breakdown is even seen in the Old Testament test of a prophet. 
You might know that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses warns the people that if a prophet, a person claiming to be a prophet, makes a prediction of something in the future and gets it wrong, he's a false prophet. Don't believe him. If he says, thus says the Lord, tomorrow it shall hail. When it doesn't, he's a liar. False prophet, you don't need to fear that guy. But Moses gives an additional qualification in Deuteronomy 13. He says to the people that even if a guy claims to be a prophet and gets a prediction right, you still need to go on to test his forthtelling, what he proclaims to be true about God. If he gets it right, hey, it's going to rain tomorrow. Whoa, it rained. Whoa, he must be a true prophet. Wait, 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 wait. What's he saying about God? Those two tests identify for us the twofold function of a prophet. Now, the great majority of prophecy in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are the foretelling kind, not foretelling. Not prediction of future things, but the proclamation of truth. I want you just to consider with me the Old and New Testaments, the prophets and the apostles. If you were just to kind of take your Bible and do that little magician, flip it open and you know, kind of stick your finger in, you would almost certainly land on a passage that is presently needed for the audience at the time. It wasn't predicting future events. Hey, someday this will happen. The overwhelming majority of the Bible is proclamation of truth for that audience. To be sure, there is future telling, and it always stands true. But the majority is instruction rather than prediction. We even have prophets or prophetic events that don't include any future telling at all. So uh, Jonah is called a prophet, and Jonah makes absolutely zero certain future predictions, ever. All of his claims are calling people to repentance because of their wickedness and proclaiming truths about God. We even see the, the uh, first king of the kingdom of Israel before it was divided. Saul, when the Spirit of God came upon him, when God chose Saul to be the king of Israel, Saul finds himself amongst a group of prophets, a pile of these guys, and people watching start going, whoa, is Saul numbered among the prophets? Now, I, I think that's that use of that function. I, I don't think that they were looking at Saul watching him make predictions of future weather patterns or future events that take place. They'd have no way to know who he's prophesying or lying. I think that them looking and saying, look, he's prophesying. I think he was, with the rest of those prophets, extolling the name of God, proclaiming truth about who God is as determined in Holy Scripture. And therefore, as he stands there proclaiming, God is good, and he is just, and he is kind, and he watches over his people, and you should repent, and you should turn to him in faith, and you should do what he commands. I think that's the kind of function he was performing. We even see this kind of breakdown in the New Testament. There definitely are places where there's future prediction. Jesus predicts things about his future all the time. We have an entire book, Revelation, that when John wrote it, every word of that was to come future, was to be something that was going to be helpful for them to think as coming after his writing of those things. But we also see the majority of the New Testament is instruction. We even see places like this in Acts 15, 32. So it says this, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So the, the, them performing the function of prophet was encouraging and strengthening the brothers with many words. It wasn't testing them a future thing. It was proclaiming truth that was an encouragement and a strength to them. Paul even uses the term 
of a Cretan. Uh, that is a, a, a cultural leader and mind amongst the people at Crete. He says this in Titus 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so he quotes this guy. I don't think that Paul means to say, this is a future teller of their people. I think he means to say, he's one of their cultural preachers. He's one of their proclaimers of their truths, what they believed to be true. And in this letter in 1 Corinthians, I think that Paul is using the fourth telling function of prophecy and providing instructions for that so much, in fact, that perhaps exclusively dealing with those things. It does not sound like when he's talking about prophecy and what he defines and what he explains prophecy is, it doesn't sound like what he has in mind is predictions, but preaching. Now, I admit that I am comforted by the fact that I am not alone in this perspective. This view is the one held by the, many of the Puritans and many other Christians in history. In fact, the definition I gave earlier wasn't mine. It was actually written by a man named Hercules Collins. Uh, he was an English Baptist minister in 1702. And that's what prophecy was defined as in that time. In fact, uh, Sam Waldron is one of my, my heroes of the, the modern faith. He, uh, he's uh, still alive today. He's a great biblical scholar. He and I wouldn't even agree with each other in all these passages, and yet he'll say this about the Puritans. One familiar with the Puritans will have noticed that they often assumed that prophesying was generally equivalent to what we call preaching. This definition, bearing in mind both functions that a prophet may perform, I think actually helps us better identify a false prophet. A false prophet is not merely one who falsely predicts future events, but one who proclaims false things about God. So while guys like today, a Joel Osteen, does not make future predictions that I'm aware of, he preaches a false prosperity gospel. That qualifies a guy like that, a proclaimer of false things, as a false prophet. And I think that what Paul had in mind about prophecy here will become clearer throughout this chapter. If I haven't convinced you yet that I think that's what's in mind with prophecy here, follow into the next handful of verses and perhaps uh, you'll be convinced there. Verses 2 through 3. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Here we see tongues mentioned. And as with prophecy, let's start with this verse uh, by establishing a definition that we can work on, tongues. According to this passage, see what he just said right out of the gate. According to this passage, tongues is not speaking to men. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. It is unintelligible to both the speaker and the hearer. In fact, let me give you a, a, a definition here. The super, tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in a language unknown to the speaker and to the hearer. Unknown to the speaker and to the hearer for the purpose of spiritual edification. Therefore, it is a supernatural, extraordinary thing. Now, I know that some of you might think like I do. And if you think like I do, then you're of this number who's sitting there right now and go, what about Acts 2? Some of you might be thinking that. 
Acts 2 seems like there's something going on that doesn't fit what you just said there, Rich. I, I, I know that. I want you to know we're going to get there, okay? Unfortunately, it fell off the, uh, the list for this week. It didn't make the cut in the amount of time that we have for today. And the better answer to it will actually come in the passage we'll cover next week. So we will come back around. But I'm acknowledging to you, if someone's sitting there going, what about Acts 2? How does that fit? Uh, people who don't understand, don't have any consternation. I'm coming back. I will answer that one for you as we get there, okay? But right now, what I think you will have to see here is that the crux of Paul's entire point in the chapter depends on us seeing that neither the speaker nor the hearer can naturally understand when tongues are being spoken. That's the, that's the whole point of this part of chapter 14. The point is, if you do it, no one will understand. That's the whole point. So follow me here, and I'll, I'll build that bridge with you next week, Lord willing, uh, into Acts 2 to try to explain what I think is going on there. Before we move away from here, notice what is actually taking place while tongues are being spoken. It's an utterance of mysteries in the Spirit. No one understands him. Why does no one understand the tongue speaker? He utters mysteries in the Spirit. That's the purpose of it. That's what is taking place in that moment. Another word could be used there to define that Greek term would be divine secrets. The mysteries there, divine secrets. But prophecy, on the other hand, speaks to people. So it is directed at people. Tongues, not directed to people. Prophecy, directed to people. That's one comparison we already have here. He speaks to people, and for what purpose? For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's what prophecy does as we see the definition continue to unfold. It continues on this train of thought through 4 and 5. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in a tongue, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Here he says that tongues has a value in building up the individual. So in this way, it is good for people in the church. Don't want to miss that. Make it go like, uh, tongues is not being forbidden. The whole point is he's saying it's not forbidden, but he'd prefer prophecy to be sought after uh, by the church here. There is a value. It is good for the person who does it. But the one who prophesies much more directly benefits the church body. While Paul will use quite a bit of ink comparing tongues and prophecy and encouraging prophecy more than tongues, it should be observed he does not see that there are no benefits in speaking in tongues. He even says, I want all of you to speak in tongues. There certainly is a way that this provides benefit. We are members of the same body. And anytime one member grows, anytime one member is honored, anytime one member is lifted up, that is good for the body. He actually said that already in chapter 12 earlier. He said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So if one is having some level of encouragement or building up, it does benefit the church in that way, but obviously less directly. Now, the fact that Paul wants all of us to be able to speak in tongues does not contradict what he said earlier about each member having distinct gifts. If you were here in the past couple of weeks, you'll remember, Paul goes, listen, you're not all going to have the same gifts. Some do this, some do this, some do this. You're not going to have the same gifts. Here, I think, is an aspirational kind of statement. There is a benefit. It is good for my upbuilding when I speak in tongues, 
Paul says. And so I would want for you to be built up too. I don't think that's saying that you will have that spiritual gift, but that that is a good and a right thing, and he wished that everybody could have that benefit. He says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Now, every Saturday night, uh, before I preach on a text, my older kids during our Bible time, I, I switch gears from our other Bible reading, and I just read through the passage I'm going to be preaching on the, the next morning. It's not uncommon for my kids to ask questions or make comments that I have to go back and rewrite portions of the sermon to, kind of, to match the questions or, oh, wow, that's a great point. Last night, as I read through this exact passage, you should know the first comment that was made by my six-year-old, Naomi, when I read uh, that the one who prophesies builds up the church. It's encouragement and consolation. She said, that's preaching. And I was like, astute, young Padwan. I think that is preaching. That's my six-year-old right there for you. She understood. That's what that's like. But then my 10-year-old daughter, Bethany, she heard that word greater. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And she says, Dad, does that mean that you are better than the other people in the church because you preach more? Yes, honey. That's oh, I'm just say that. I go, no, that's actually an excellent question. You know who else used that exact same word to refer to others than himself? Jesus. I'm going to show you what Jesus says in John chapter 14 as he's speaking to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So I do not believe this is a value statement of the individual, that one exercising a particular spiritual gifts makes that person higher in value. Otherwise, Jesus would literally be saying to the disciples, you guys are actually better than me. I don't think he's saying that at all about these guys. Well, then in what way is he using that term greater? What does he mean? How will Jesus' disciples do greater work? And the answer is in regards to the extent of their reach. Jesus never wrote anything other than in the dust, it looks like at one point. Jesus didn't produce any volumes of literature. He never left the promised land. And yet the disciples were to be sent around the world to continue the work that he started here on earth through the power of the Spirit. I think it is that greater that is in mind. Same Greek word, and that's the same kind of idea in mind. He even says, because, I don't know if you heard that there, and you will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. You're going to do far more than I've accomplished in the 30 years here in regards to the number of things that will be done and the reach and extent of how far that will go out for the aeon before my return. I think that's what is in mind. So in the same way, prophecy is of greater service in building up the church than tongues. It has a greater, immediate, helpful impact on the larger extent of people. I think that's the kind of greater that is in mind. And that's why he wants them to do it. I want the greatest benefit for the church. So the more of you that are proclaiming truth to more people, the better. You'll notice, though, he says here, unless someone interprets. Did you see that qualification in that last sentence? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Think about that. First off, interpretation of tongues is itself a spiritual gift, supernatural gift. He actually specifies that in chapter 12, verse 10. Calls that a particular gift. Needed by the people in order to interpret. When an interpreter is present, tongues 
essentially forms the same function as prophecy, proclaims the gospel, and can therefore be of great benefit. When there's no interpreter present, tongues should not be exercised in public. He'll actually say that even more clearly as we continue down this passage. There's no interpreter there, just stay quiet. Because it won't build up the church, it'll just build up you. Keep it yourself, it'll be good for you. Church will benefit in that way. But unless it's an interpreter, don't, don't, don't go do that. It will not be helpful for them. Use that time for prophecy instead. The right administering of tongues is that it remain private unless an interpretation is provided. Think about what that means. Quite simply, if you've ever experienced somebody else speaking in tongues and there wasn't an interpreter present, that was ungodly. That was not for your benefit or for your building up. And while the Lord can use all things for the good of his people, that's not supposed to have happened. And so unfortunately, that's a reality for many people today. They've experienced tongues spoken in a way that is clearly contrary to what this demands. And I think that perhaps that has motivated people to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It should be said that when tongues is performed in private, there still can be a benefit to the church in the same way that a private prayer of an individual member benefits the church. It'll just not be felt corporately in the same way. It's a part of the body that is to be treated with greater modesty, as he says in chapter 12, verse 23. Now Paul goes on to explain what it is about prophecy that makes it a greater benefit to the church. If it's not been really clear yet, he makes sure. This is, okay, this is why prophecy actually builds up better than tongues. Here's why. And I think it's going to shed light both on the gifts of prophecy and tongues, give us even a better clarity on that definition. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Tongues, then, does not necessarily bring a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. It doesn't bring those things necessarily. That's why it might not be a benefit unless he is able to do that through an interpreter. But prophecy can do these kinds of things. In fact, this tells us something obviously about prophecy. He puts it in a similar category as the other three. Revelation, knowledge, teaching. They're in the same category to him. He thinks of them in a similar way. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar. And again, this lends more credence to the definition I gave earlier. That prophecy here is essentially preaching. It's a teaching of truth. It's revealing something people need to know. It's clarifying things with knowledge. And what follows here then builds on what this statement conveys. He gives us three illustrations to make this point. Look at verses 7 through 9 as he gives the first two. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So, what is it that Paul views when tongues are being spoken? That they would be unintelligible to the hearer. They, don't, they won't understand. The hearer doesn't know what you said. Just like an instrument that plays indiscernible notes, you won't know what tune is being played. Just like a squeaky bugle, the soldiers won't know to prepare for the battle. These, I think, are pretty obvious allegories, what he's using here. He moves on to the last example in verses 10 through 11. He says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker, a foreigner to me. 
This, I think, is the third example. It's not defining tongues. I think it's explaining yet another example. It'd be just like some dude speaking Russian. If I don't know Russian, it's like I, it's meaningless to me. It's not helpful in any way. I'm a foreigner to that speaker. He's a foreigner to me. You might even notice in this illustration, Paul doesn't pitch himself in the role of the speaker, but of the hearer. Again, conveying to us, like, I can't interpret that unless the Lord does something special. And that's the last illustration. He concludes, in summary, this whole idea in this flow, we'll continue into next week, much more to build on this here for sure. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. We're about halfway through this passage so far. That's why we're going to take next week to finish this up. But this is again a reminder as to the greater point that is being made in these chapters. He wants for us to strive to excel in building up the church. He wants the church to be built up, and he wants the members to do the building of the church. More so, he wants the members to desire to build better, to hone their God-given, supernaturally granted craft. This should be our desire, that because we love our church, we should want to invest our energies into serving it well. I want our church to feel my love better. I want to meet more needs. I, I want to fulfill what God has designed me to go do for the sake of the church, not self, but for the church. What are the ways that I can help others? I can love God first, others second, and put myself last. We should desire to excel, strive to excel in building up the church. That's why I think it's so helpful to be carefully informed on what these spiritual gifts are, what they mean. I want to show you something that I saw this week in Revelation chapter 19 as I was studying through the whole idea of prophecy and tongues, the definition for prophecy the New Testament would give us clarity on. And I've read this passage in Revelation many, many times. And, and this one verse always kind of stuck out with a question mark to me. I was kind of like, ah, I think I get it, but that's kind of weird to put it right there. And actually, after... Pounding through so much on 1 Corinthians 14, this began to be clearer to me. I wanted to show it to you. John, the apostle, is just performing function one of a prophet. He's writing the book of Revelation, future telling. He's predicting future stuff. He's telling us what's going to happen. As he gets towards the end of that revelation he's writing down, in chapter 19, he conveys that it was an angel who'd been telling him all of these things and just finished extolling God, telling these beautiful realities that are about to be true for him. He's going to, people who experience at the time uh, then that he's pointing towards. And as John is before this angel who just proclaims gospel truth, this is what happens in verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And your brothers, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. First off, that's awesome. The angel's not like, well, you can give me a little bit. No, the angel knows. Listen, you heard me proclaim truth from God. I'm the messenger. I'm just like you. I'm like your brothers. I'm a creature. I'm not the origin of these truths, merely the proclaimer of them. Worship God, not me. Worship God. And this is what he summarizes with. John summarizes this statement 
In Revelation 19.10, John writes, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I want to say that again in different words. I think might make it even clearer. The essence of preaching, prophesying, preaching, is proclamation of the gospel. This angel did not intend to convey truth about God that he would gain anything, but that all worship, praise, and glory would go to God. He's a creature just like us, that angel. The essence of preaching, any proclaiming of truth, is the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what a church needs most for a building. I think that's why over and over and over Paul's hammering on this. But I want all of you to do this. You all need to be prophesying in front of and before each other all the time. You need to be proclaiming the gospel all the time. In season and out. When times are tough and when they're going great. When, when it seems like you just came out of a hard season or when you're heading into one. You need the gospel because that's what builds up the church. And if you're here with us today and you're hearing some of this stuff and you're going, man, this doctrine stuff like kind of crazy. I've never even heard of prophecy and tongues the way you're talking about. I don't know what to do with all that. Here's the summary for you. You're a sinner just like we are, just like I am. And you deserve the just wrath of God. And that wrath poured out by God on you is death, hell, separation from God in all eternity. Not cozying up to him for all eternity, separated. Eternal conscious torment that we call hell. And Jesus taught about this time and time again. But the good news, the gospel is that God sent his son into this world to live a perfect life that we didn't live but ought to have so that in him we may be crucified as he was crucified. Paul writes later, for I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me. We are to so identify with Jesus on the cross seeing he is being punished for what I did And by that belief, we can have saving faith. And now we live in that newness of knowledge. That we can have eternal life, not because of our good, but because of His. We deserve death and punishment, and He took it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. That is how you can be saved. And it is the only way to be saved. That very same Jesus was killed on the cross and buried in the ground in a tomb and He was kept there for three days until he rose again. And when he rose again, he taught his saints, commissioned them to go, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is right now, ruling in all authority, where we worship and praise and give him glory until we see him face to face. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Talk to another Christian here around you. We can help you as much as possible to point you to these realities because the proclamation of the gospel The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what we want for you to hear. Turn to him and be saved. Brothers and sisters, I'm well aware that there are many questions that were not answered yet today. Some that we may may not get to just because of the kind of uh, texts that we have in front of us and others that I, I very much hope to get to, Lord willing, in this next week. But I want for you to, with me, consider what these passages mean. Pound through them this next week. Look through 1 Corinthians 14. Ask some hard questions for yourself. And in all things, be eager to strive to excel in building up the church in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that delivers truth time and time again, week in and week out. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit into our lives, into our hearts to to equip us to hear and understand your word. 
Help us to be empowered to do what you've called for us to do. Help us to understand what we need to understand today to do your work. Because all of the redemptive work is complete in Jesus. We want to live as those who've been crucified with him. Help us to be different than the world. Help us to think different than the world. Help us to proclaim his truth to each other and even amongst those who do not yet believe. Lord, we need your help in this, and we ask for you to be with us as we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.